Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to The Courage to Change. I am your hostess, and I will be showing you to your table yep. while we discuss Chris Poulos mm-hmm. and Floor Edwards. Yep. Their episodes. Pretty crazy stuff. I'm like speechless every time after these episodes now. <laughs> yeah. And then you do, and then we do combos. I'm like, holy. Right. Holy, holy content. Two at once, exactly. Holy content. I mean, what phenomenal people both of them are. Yeah. So I want to, I have this, I discovered this woman who has this term she uses, and I think I've fallen in love with it because I think our podcast is about this. So they're called expanders. And um, not for your teeth. No, not for your teeth. That is the first thing that I think about. I know. I remember those from the orthodontist. That's hurt. I didn't have them, Ugh. but I saw other people have them, the like, thing on the top of your mouth. Yeah. See, I had- That I, looks wait, brutal. I no, I didn't have an expander. My friend had an expander, and I know because, poor thing, it like gave her a little speech impediment. <laughs> yeah, like, no, I had headgear. It went, I, oh yeah. I was told, why am I telling you this? I don't know, but we're going with it. I was told- Take this home and wear this 24-7. I really, 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 really need to see. I don't know if I have a picture, but do you know that I like some people have headgear that like not expanded that you know goes across like only one area of your head. Yeah. No, I had headgear. It looked like (laughs) a neck brace almost. Yeah. It went across my neck, like around and connected like the out the outside. So like yeah. my, like you can't see me yeah. right now, but like you have this horrendous smile because there's yeah. this like wire coming out of your like mouth. And then I also had the head gear. So it went over my Wait, head like a what's skull the difference? cap. Oh my God. So I had two We need an orthodontist on this podcast. For this. No, I'll just tell you because I had to wear this freaking stuff. Thank God it worked because I didn't How old were you? Seventh grade. They wanted me to wear it to school. That's rude. I would have looked right. Okay, so you know in Finding Nemo, as if uh, you know Finding Nemo, Darla, the the. Okay, for anyone who knows Finding Nemo, is she in the first Finding Nemo? Darla is in the first Finding Nemo. She's the girl that goes into the orthodontist office and gets the fish out of the tank and shakes them and like they die. Yeah. Okay, I know Darla. So she's got like gnarly headgear and she's got it across like it comes up and over her head. It looks like like a like almost like a little. It's not a cap like a stocking cap. Yeah. But it definitely like was this like apparatus apparatus that went completely over the top of my head like a hat and attached to the sides of my mouth. Oh, my God. Along with the back one. Yeah. Wear that to school, Christiana. Hey, you know what, though? Here's <laughs> the thing. I think I started having sex in seventh grade. So I didn't even know what it was. Right. But here's what I'm thinking. Headgear feels <laughs> like that would have been amazing birth control. I was so bullied in seventh grade because I was brand new to school. So no. I was trying to make I'm, friends. I'm just thinking of not, like fr- from a parental not perspective. make people run from me yeah. further. Yeah, I know. I'm just thinking about like yes. if I have a wild bling, if which it, I, I have too. So All I have to like, say is – You have is, to wear headgear at night so you can't sneak out. I was an extremely <laughs> obedient child. Yeah. And this is where I put my foot down. Well? I was like, no. I wore it at night because I knew I needed it for yeah, my braces. But, yeah, but not – during but the during the day, absolutely. It was to the point where my mom would pack it in my backpack Oof. and let me know that I needed to put this on. And so I'd always be like, oh, I'm eating breakfast. I need to wash my mouth. Like it was just always. And then I was like, I'd just run out the door. Oh, my gosh. 
I'm sorry, we've eaten up part of the episode with headgear, but anyone... If, yeah, if anyone, but that might be traumatic for other people. Maybe they... It was Maybe people are recovering fun. from having to wear headgear in their childhood. Hey, if if you wore headgear, please give me a shout out because <laughs> it was not fun and it was definitely a couple years. Those and, of you who wore headgear, I see you. Yeah, I do see you. <laughs> I felt like, I don't know, I felt You've like a seen. science experiment. That's exactly how it felt. It's kind of that way. I, I would have taken an expander over headgear. Well, let me tell you about expanders. Okay. This is a different type of expander. <laughs> okay, so basically an expander is what inspires us. The, the idea is that what inspires us about others is a mirror of our capacity and capability. So we, when we see people in our daily lives that when we watch a movie or we're entranced by an actor or a character in a book or obsess over a public figure social on social media or someone we admire in our daily lives or someone we hear on a podcast, we are actually recognizing aspects of ourselves, denied or unmet, that have yet to integrate and they're inviting us to grow into them. So those people are inviting us to grow into those aspects that we're seeing in them that inspire us that have been denied or unmet. So you are simply, like in the people that you are admiring, you are seeing the things that you are admiring, you're seeing your unmet self. So there's another piece. Oh, I'll read this stuff. Every single one of us inhabits the full spectrum of humanness, those very aspects of these people, the expanders, that are bringing you so much inspiration are actually a reflection of aspects of you that have gotten lost due to societal, media, parental, or peer programming. If you are finding yourself attracted to your hero's influence, it's because you're seeing the amount of influence you have within yourself. This is my favorite line. Harnessing the energy of each of those pings of inspiration is a map into how expanded you can become. Expanders are some of the most valuable energy you will ever have around you. They are literally who expand your belief system when it comes to manifestation. And learning how to detect them and integrate them is a potent part of living an existence of our being in full expansion and possibility of receiving what we are calling in. So that is a fancy way of saying that these stories that we're hearing are people, are expanders. They're giving people glimpses into how you can overcome various circumstances and how, like, listening to all the different types of stories each situation, at least for me, and I hope for other people, is the story of overcoming something and therefore showing people that that is possible. Mm. And by illuminating the possibility of that change, that person is expanding the unmet potential in another. So we have to see and hear what it is that, that something is possible, right? Mm. So like, I don't know that it's possible to go from federal prison to becoming an attorney. That path to me would not, I mean, I just didn't know that, right? I didn't go to federal prison, obviously. But what it shows me in this situation with Chris is that that you can you may have to convince people along the way, but that if you just keep pushing, keep trying, keep going, you just that that's the goal and you just don't give up. Mm-hmm 
that there's a path for you. And so there may be someone, I have a lot of, and I talked about this in Chris's podcast, I have a lot of friends who got sober and they have these felonies or misdemeanors, They they have a record. And then they go into some professional capacity you know, I have a friend who mortgage industry, friend uh, nursing, uh, lawyer, doctor, the whole gamut. And they have to do such extensive work around explaining why. And um, I talked about my friend who went to dental hygiene school, paid all this money to go, no guarantees that she would, you know, they would let her sit for the exam. She sat from her boards. She passed it and no guarantees that like they would continue to let her do that. And she, you know, she did. But Chris is showing people that there's possibility to overcome these things that feel like huge weights, you know, around our ankles. And I think that that is so key and such a great overarching sentiment for what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And it's even... From, you know, someone who hasn't had to deal with, you know, federal prison or anything of that nature, I can only imagine how that would feel where you come out, you've restarted your life. And there are things that Chris said in the episode where he's saying, you know, you've basically gone to prison and you've essentially paid your dues. And so you should come out of that. The legal system is set up to basically say, okay, now you've paid your debt. You should be able to go have a clean start. And the reality is that that's not the way that it's right. set up. Right. And that there it, are people who will give you the opportunities, but just in general, the way that someone who has been to prison and has come out of it, you know, just depending on what they've been in for and if they have a federal or a state record, there is a huge impingement on what they're able to move forward with, with their career, even in society when people find out, oh, you've been to prison, all of a sudden the stigma comes and, you know, it's just yeah. there's something huge that they have to face. And you kind of have to face that, I think, in recovery. There, There's with yeah. the stigma too. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to, you almost never have to reveal that you've, you're have you in recovery if you don't want to, if you don't have a record, right? Like that's right. not something that you have to reveal. So it's a bit different in that sense because, you know, <laughs> I know I was seeing something, someone was trying to, she and her husband were going on a cruise out of Vancouver. And if you have mo- more than one DUI, or you have a DUI, that's considered a serious crime in Canada. And so when you scan your passport, it shows up, apparently. This is from what I understand. And so they turn people away. And so it's a big deal. And and, and there are a lot of consequences, whereas I'm in recovery, there may be stigma, but I don't need to tell the Canadian government, if you scan my passport, it's not like, hey, she's 13 years sober. (laughs) You know, none of that comes up. So I don't have to deal with that level. But I think, you know, the penal system, like if we think about means punishment, Mm -hmm. penal is punishment, right? Penitentiary, paying penance. It's not rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. It's not a recovery center. It's paying your dues. And the other side of that, and they, you know, I mean, people do talk about the system as rehabbing people, right? But more often than not, like really more often than not, that's not the case. He mentioned something that I thought was interesting for federal conviction. So you can expunge. There are expungement processes for state crimes. And from what I've seen, they are not super impressive, but they're there. They do exist. And so there's something, I you know, it's not without its 
downfalls and complications. However, for federal convictions, there is no restoration, only a presidential pardon. So, you know, he talks about the racial disparity and feeling real guilt and seeing his economic privilege when he walks out of the courtroom. He's just gotten sober and he they arrest him on federal charges, but he's sober by now. Mm-hmm. And he walks out of the courtroom and he sees all the people of color who are still in jail cells because he was able to get a an attorney and they were not, you know, they were not able to get a private attorney. And he says at that moment, he vowed to become an attorney. He went to prison after that and did almost three years. And he says that he would have done 10 if it hadn't been for the attorney he had had. And what that would have looked like would be that just now he would be getting back on his feet out of prison. And When we think about that, think of what he's accomplished. So he's seven years sober and what he's accomplished since the time he's been released, right? That would have all been prison time simply as, you know, a result of economic disparity. And there's so much, this is such a complicated topic, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many different things that go about that. Like not many people, I would say that the majority, and this is totally a guess, but I would guess that the majority of people coming out of federal prison don't accomplish as much as he has after, you know, in, in, in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but that, that's my guess. So to use it as a blanket statement may be tough, but but it's still true. It's still the reality of his situation. And, you know, he had already, so this is another interesting thing. I was like, how did you go to college right after that? Well, he had already been admitted. So he just resumed classes at the University of Maine. So lucky, right? That was, yes. So lucky. So, so lucky. It's the right timing right there. Right. Serious right timing. And then talks about getting his first A ever and that feeling of like, oh, I can, it's okay for me to excel and I can thrive, not just survive. And what an, you know, I forgot about that mentality, mm-hmm. um, but he really brought that back for me. Like this feeling of like, oh, it's okay for me. Like, it's okay for me to do really well. This I can do this and I don't need to be this other thing that society has, has helped me in one way, shape or form become. And then he talks about substance use disorder, substance use disorder, being a health condition that is treatable. And I do want to talk about that a bit. But I want to go over this quote, the thing that just, this is the piece of his whole story for me that was the most powerful and kind of stuck in my mind, which is he goes to the dean's office and the, who because he has a friend, right? Because he has a connection. And this is the dean's office for the law school that for he's the law wanting school that, to apply to. Right. He's never been in an office like that before, right? So he's, uh, you know, putting his suit together, trying to look professional. He shows up. The, the dean only knows that he could bring diversity to the law school. And Chris starts to tell his story and the dean's whole demeanor shifts, right? Mm-hmm. And then the dean starts to suggest other career ideas. And this just, this just like... I don't know. It just touched me in a way like, so I'll just say what he he said. Maybe this is the dean. Maybe you can be a drug treatment specialist, a social worker, a counselor. Is there something else that would be more suitable for you and someone with your background? Because I don't think the legal community would embrace you. And I felt like 
hearing that, I know this is weird, but I, maybe it's not weird. I mean, I just, I won't judge it, but I felt like hearing that was the equivalent of like, it kind of makes me emotional. It, I've seen, I can't reference them directly. So, but I've seen things where people of color or people, or, you know, people who identify as some sort of LGBTQ come in somewhere and want to be something and everybody suggests alternatives for them, like Mm -hmm. something that's more suitable for your background where you'll be embraced, like you won't be embraced here. And, you know, women, you know, particularly, you know, for me, particularly women who wanted to do things, you know, wanted to be part of the Marine Corps, wanted, you know, be in battle, who, you know, my grandmother was the first female partner at Goldman Sachs in the 1980s. And she has told me some crazy stories about what that was like and how, I mean, that stories where I just, my jaw dropped. Mm -hmm. And my husband sent me this article from the 1950s. It was a newspaper article and it was an it was an image and it had three men quoted in it talking about whether or not it was okay to spank your wife. What? No, I'm dead serious. And Your wife? So this article had my jaw on the floor. It had my jaw on the floor because it talked, yeah, so like, is it okay to spank your wife? Like like as in a punishment. Punishment. Like you did bad. Yeah. And what the f? So this was in the nine. I'll send uh-uh. this to you. I, I'll send this to you. This is oh. I, I couldn't. Mm. Bl- so anyway, this is 1950s, and it talked about this, and all three men were talking about their opinions about as if it was like parenting a child. And what struck me, yeah. And what struck me was like, <laughs> yeah, but see, that's only I literally can't. I can't. But that's can't. only crazy to <sighs> us. Right? What struck me, but that's how women were seen and treated. And <sighs> this is how drug addicts were were like, there's no hope for them. We're going to put them in psych wards. Right. And people who have been to jail, there's, you know, we're not going to reintegrate you into society. And when the dean starts saying, like, isn't there something better for you? Like, you don't belong here. We won't embrace you. As opposed to like what you could do here, or maybe they'll, you'll change people's minds, or all these things. And I just thought, oh my gosh, a instant rejection. You do not fit in here. It is like the yeah. the, the yeah. Uh, I'm taking a class right now called stereotypes in the media, and I honestly, oh, I thought it was just going to be like an easy A. Mm-hmm. I just thought, oh, stereotypes yeah. in the media for sure. Yeah, yeah like we, yeah. Can, we can talk about opinions. Totally. I'm a woman. I can you know yeah. talk about gender and yeah. all the things I've experienced or seen people experience. But, I mean, that's the very definition of a stereotype. And the stereotype, what it does is it it takes someone with certain skills or values or belief systems or a culture, whatever the gender, race, whatever the case may be, and it puts them in a specific category or box. And the whole reason why humans stereotype is because it's easy. We think it totally. categorically. Totally. So this person is this. This person's like this. This person thinks like this. Right. They fit in this box for me, this box for me, this box for me, whenever it's actually you're labeling someone. And and what it does is it helps you be able to process things quicker. Yep. So snap judgment on this person or, oh, no, right. you just belong here because it does take a certain amount of effort to stand, to step outside of what your belief systems mm-hmm. are. And whether or not you change, you know, your more just the very foundations of what you believe in, you can you can still kind of change slowly 
the small and large stereotypes that you put people in. I think that's kind of, that was so interesting to me because I just thought a stereotype was, oh, I, it's just like a snap judgment, but yeah. it's so much more. It's actually, you have completely categorized that person. Therefore, they only belong here. Right. And, and so, nowhere else. And that's where, that's where Chris comes in because he's, he's challenging the stereotype. He's mm -hmm. challenging being categorized. And I think that particularly people, this, and this is where I was like, you know, when your self-esteem is low, when you've been categorized for a long time, yeah. when, you know, you have struggled with addiction for many years, it's really hard to have the self-esteem to say, no, I deserve a chance. Like that is a hard thing because in, in the back of your head, at least for me, there's, there was for many years a fear that I didn't deserve that chance, mm -hmm. that I was going to let them down, that I was going to reinforce the stereotype that instead I, of right instead there. of, right. And so I think that, you know, that was just really, and, and what he said, so that, you know, and this is the piece that struck me, Chris said, Dean, why didn't the judge give me a life sentence in prison? And the Dean said, I'm not sure. Maybe it was your criminal record, your conduct. I don't know. And then Chris said, then Dean, why are you giving me a life sentence here today? Mike dropped. Yeah, right? Mike drop. Yeah. And like this idea of redemption and the legal system. And once you've paid your debt, you're supposed to be whole and society is supposed to be whole. When that's all done, shouldn't it be done? Right? And, you know, I don't, it's funny. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, right? Because there's a piece of me that's like, well, we do need to consider previous behavior, right? Like that's not particularly federal prison. He went to federal prison in a kind of, you know, for a very drug-related thing, but it didn't sound to me, at least, I don't know, it didn't sound to me like he was El Chapo, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like you know, like he he was there and he did right. some, but, but I, I didn't get the sense that like, yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. But I wonder what the how do we decide who's rehabilitated and what do we do when we allow that to be part of the plan? And do we really want to rehabilitate people or do we want to continue to punish and label them? Is that easier? And what does that create? So there's so many like different questions. And what's cool is that that's what Chris does now for yeah. a living, right? Is he represents this community of people who, you know, many are not better. Many go on to have incredibly high recidivism rates. The question is, can we change that? What can we do to change that? And do we care? Mm -hmm. You know, this is a topic I've talked to you about before with sexual predators. Yep. And particularly child molesters, where it's like, again, and I, you know, coming from a background of having experienced sexual abuse and knowing people, like, I'm not advocating for, for sex offenders. But here's what I am saying. If we as a society are not are only willing to punish and chastise this group of people instead of try to understand why and how this is happening and try to go and talk to them mm -hmm. and find out, like, why is this happening? What is this drive? Is there anything we can do to stop it? All we do is just label them and throw them away, lock, you know, whatever. Like, we, we just... There's no curiosity about how we might fix this problem. 
It's all reactionary. And I just wonder how often we do that with other things that we don't realize. I think sex offenders is a really big one and and kind of straightforward Mm. in that like, Pretty much everyone hates a sex offender, right? Like that's yeah. I'm even even in talking about prison. In prison, they're even right, right. Thrown into another part of the yard. Right. They like, are I, not like, received. Right. Well. They are not received well. But yeah. my question is like, why are people? What what's behind that? Like where? What's going on? How can we stop that? Is there something? You know, <laughs> can we do something to prevent? We're so in in our society that something that drives me nuts. We're so reactionary. We are so out of the prevention business. We and, and I know there are a lot of people trying to push wellness, which is which is, you know, prevention is mm-hmm. but, you know, that's as it relates to nutrition and, and exercise, you know, other things. Like what about preventing people from acting out on sexual impulses that are not acceptable in society? How do we do that? How do we figure that out? And so I just come back to this idea that, you know, as Chris talks about what he does now and goes out and he gives another perspective and he introduces, you know, he he posts online about being on airplanes with lots of judges and attorneys and he, he is in the room where the decisions are being made. Mm-hmm. He worked for the White House and he works on reentry policy and he is exposing all of these people to someone who has struggled with alcoholism and addiction and who's been to federal prison and giving them this education that they could not get in schools or books because it complicates the stereotype if you know someone and love someone mm-hmm. who is supposedly that bad stereotype, right? And you see exactly, you see someone who's actually been able to make the change yeah. and, and break and, and shatter essentially yeah. that stereotype. And I think that that really speaks to Chris and his courage. You're There's a certain level of rejection that I know that you experience as someone in recovery or someone who's working through their recovery, getting sober. And I know that just as a human, there's only so much rejection that you can take and you have to kind of start all over and reheal from it again and again, however long it takes. And to be rejected from, you know, a place where you think you belong, but then someone else is telling you you don't belong. I mean, that's incredibly painful. That could have been ultimately very life-changing for him. For some people, that would be it. For some people, that's, that would be you it. Know, that's what I, I mean. can't say that I, you know, that I would have reacted the same way. I, I don't know if I would have something would have risen up in me if I was in his position and, and fought back like he did, or if I would have said, thank you so much, are you sure? And then turned around and cried and walked out. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah. that's his journey. And, and you know, I'm so glad that he did because he really is like yeah. kind of what I call a breaker. Yeah. And a breaker is someone who's, they're going first. They're a pioneer. Right, they're, exactly. They're one of the first ones right. to go which forward. Is, part, is it similar to the expand, you yeah. know, the expander, which is, they're showing they're showing another experience, showing people you know that it doesn't have to be the same, and and he's definitely doing that with all the cool things that he's doing, and he does a lot of mountaineering stuff, hiking stuff, and so he's really mm-hmm. into um, intense sports, and he talks about trouble focusing, and I have found as many people I know have found that 
a lot of that stuff relates to how much exercise your body has had. And the more exercise you've had, the more productive you can be in those hours that you're sitting. Oh, fantastic. Um, so I think that that was, that was an interesting little tidbit there. And yeah, I just a really, he's a, a really impressive guy. And I'm super grateful because I went to college with a guy named Joe and his name is Joe Smith. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, trying to find you on the internet would be miserable. Right. And he um, messaged me years ago and said, you got to, you got to meet this. You got, you need to know this guy, Chris. And they went to law school together. Uh -huh. And the fact that here, here's, here's where it comes out. The fact that I am open about my journey and my recovery led Joe, who knows me, and I haven't seen him since college. I mean, we stay in touch online, but haven't seen him since college, to recall my journey and connect me and say, you should know this person. Like, it expands my connection to the world because I'm open about it. And it was interesting when you speak about rejection. Rejection comes in a lot of different ways. And recently I had a conversation with someone who's more involved in like corporate healthcare, and I'm involved in some circles that work with um, women and health technology. And we were talking and I was telling her, you know, we're catching up and I was telling her about the podcast and telling her about how I sort of came to the conclusion that I want, I was just going to share, I was just going to be open and talk about my stuff and let the chips fall where they may and that I had a lot of fear about how that was going to affect my career and my children and all these different things. And, um, and she said, and of course, completely innocently, so it's not, it was not a, it was, it had nothing to do with me. But what I heard, right, what she said was, oh my gosh, I would never be able to do that. I would be terrified to do that because I said I was scared to do that, right? I'm mm -hmm. expressing, she goes, she, she, being in corporate America, being in, you know, she confirmed those fears for me. Mm. Like I would be afraid too. I don't know that I would be able to do that, those types of things. You're so courageous. What I heard was you're doing something really dangerous. Mm. And and I, I remembered that, right? Like I also remembered like I made this decision and I, you know, of course it shared that with her like, yep, you're right. And I've decided that the people who will work with me and want to work with me going forward are people who are going to see that, you know, if they use my alcoholism and drug addiction from when I was a child against me that, and negate all the things I've done since then, you know, mm -hmm. that they're missing out yeah. and that I have to be part of expanding other people's experience and letting them know that it's okay. Mm -hmm. And we have to have these conversations and have people pushing through like Chris about what it means to serve your sentence and how much we can hold against someone. Yeah. Right. How, how, when, when is there rehabilitation? When is there, when is that penance? You know, what does that look like? And, and when are, when is society made whole? Um, and I think that they're really interesting questions because I also, you know, definitely recognize that some people, the fact that they've been to prison, jails, whatever, for various things is, a serious indicator that they are not safe, mm. right? So, like, how do you? How do you? Yeah, how do how you identify that? Yeah. So, I've been. I just love these some of these shows on Netflix, and I forgot the name of it. I'll have to look it up and put it in the show notes. But basically, it's I 
it's, I think it's called Girls Incarcerated now that I'm thinking about it. And it's about a prison, like a juvenile prison mm. system or detention center in, uh, oh, what is it? Madison, Indiana, I believe. I believe it's in the middle of nowhere. And these girls, it documents some girls' lives, how long they've been in there, why, what the reasons are, who the ones are that are, you know, coming in and out quite a bit. And, and the derivative uh, seems to be substance abuse kind of yeah. in their area. And the thing that I loved about this show and what made me continue watching it was it wasn't just exploiting these girls' lives and what they're going through. It also showed the background of what this system has implemented. And the Madison, they call it Madison. I don't know what the, I think Madison Correctional Facility or Juvenile Correctional Facility. Specifically, this is for the youth, you know, for teenagers. They have different levels and tiers that these girls can achieve. And it's based on their behavior. And um, within certain tiers comes certain things that they get. So like if you reach a certain tier, then then you can get your hair done by somebody. Yeah. Because um, they're not allowed to touch each other. Yeah. And you can... Like you start off in purple clothing and then you can earn what's called your burgundy, which yeah. is, you know, your burgundy is basically like, hey, this is a leader in here. You, you've you've shown leadership skills. And if you stop, if you if your behavior goes backwards, then your burgundies are, Do they- are relinquished. So the other thing that I really loved is they have these girls meet with a counselor and they talk about and they it didn't show a lot of it so i don't know the whole ins and outs of it but what it looks like is these girls do start getting taught how to behave if someone is instructing them or giving them some sort of instructions on coping skills on some sort of education on substance abuse why they tend to reach for it helping them develop coping skills so that whenever they do get out, they're learning these skills that they can take with them. Now, right. It's it, rehabilitation. It's rehabilitation. And they're also teaching them, hey, like when you get out of here, remember, there's going to be no one telling you this and showing you this. So you need to practice this here and now and understand that your behavior affects other people. And, you know, it's still a prison. So there's, there's, you know, I'm sure it's not perfect. And there's, I, I saw different levels of, you know, people just really, these girls acting out and just feeling like, you know, they couldn't do anything right. But what I really loved about that show is that there was an emphasis on rehabilitation. And as they interviewed people and as they interviewed the person who's, you know, prison warden, I don't know what he's called, but he really, really cared about making sure that these girls got some sort of education. And they understood it's because a lot of the parents weren't giving them that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting I'm glad to hear that. And I I hope that that was, I hope that is what's going on there. My experience in juvenile housing (laughs) detention, not not through the state, was that there were tiers where you got things and you would level up. You started, you know, certain whatever. And then, but that people, it, what it did was it it um, encouraged other girls to rat on other people for things that they were doing so that they would get a higher level because they were it was that was showing that they were compliant to encourage it's interesting again I I don't mean to oh it's the other side of it yeah I don't mean to negate what you're saying because I really hope that's the case I just I think it's really important for all those things to think about what they are and I, I actually think this is important in all areas where parenting business you know, management, whatever, think about what are the incentives and creating incentives. Because it's kind of like with Dan's story, who um, hasn't come out yet, but in Dan's story, he talks about 
having to be violent in order to have people leave him alone Mm -hmm. and then catching more time for that. So there's just, there's a lot of, it gets complicated as there are a lot of like natural systems in there. And I think it's really cool when there's someone, probably that warden who takes it upon themselves to really help people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's system wide. I think it's, I think it's like these individual places where Mm -hmm. there is someone who, who cares. It did seem to be very unique. Yeah. From my understanding. Well, I mean, that's probably why they're watching it. (laughs) It's probably why they were like, oh, we'll make a show on this because, yeah, because it's probably different than, you know, they had to go to Indiana to find someone who was doing that because that's not the norm. Right. And they did follow-ups with these girls too. That's really cool. Some of them, unfortunately, you know, went back in, but I definitely saw when each of them were being interviewed that it gave them at least something to think about. Yeah. And they kind of started coming to like a repentance within yeah. themselves like, hey, should I be doing this? But I mean, you bring up a really interesting point because, you know, it's just like with anything, you have to look at the fruit yeah. that it bears. Yeah. What like kind people of have a lot bearing? of good intentions, but I've seen right. the good intentions be too simplistic, like not really understanding the system, like coming from an aerial view of like what we think, like, oh, these levels should inspire people to want to behave better. And maybe on the outside they would, but on the inside they wouldn't. Exactly. You need that internal view. And that's kind of where Chris comes back in is like, here's a person who's been there. And there's all the people creating the rules around this stuff probably 90%, and that's probably being generous, have not been to prison, have Mm -hmm. not been to jail. I mean, 90% is probably really generous. Mm. So interviewing someone one time, you know, hey, asking them about it versus having the experience, you know. A little different. A little different. (laughs) So I think there's a lot of value there. And I just, I really dig what he's, what he's done. It's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of want to transition into floor her story just mind blowing mm. as well and totally different you know kind of a different different vibe and we've never had a, a guest on you know that has come from her circumstance not yet at least yeah yeah she had some really you know what i found to be interesting of course there's like the shock value of of being in a cult but what i found was interesting were all the parallels to addiction and living in addiction and recovery and she said a lot of key things that struck me that I really related to having, even though I've never been in a cult. And it was interesting to me. I found it very interesting just from a sociological standpoint of what she struggled with when she came out, like what you yes. or I might think she would struggle with versus what she actually struggled with. Yeah. And that the cult, Children of God, was created by Father David, who was trying to escape. He was trying, it was an escape, right? So it's an, it's this escape and he brings other people, you know, very much that addiction mentality of like, it'll be better here. Like, like just run away, create a new place. Create, create your own utopia. Yeah, yeah exactly. he was essentially trying to do. Yeah. And it turned out pretty bad. Right. And, and, and that she, some of the biggest things that she struggled with are like, she grew up never thinking she was going to get old. She never saw People get old. Everybody who went to the cult, they were in their 20s and 30s, and then there were children. Mm. And so she didn't see old people, and she grew up believing that she was going to die young because end of days was coming. So it was really interesting, and, and they they talked a lot. The, the leaders were all about, like, 
we need to save people. Like you were either evil or you were lost and needed to be saved. And it's very extreme. There's one yeah. or the other. You were either an upstanding citizen of children of God or you were. No, this was outside people. Right. Outside people, right? So, like you, but you were either outside of the, the outside of outside it. of the group. You were evil, or you were lost. Yes, and needed to be saved. And she said the biggest thing she had to heal from was assuming that everything is her fault because it was a narrative they were supposed to save. The narrative was they were supposed to save the entire world, but it was a world that she wasn't able to interact with, and that they were the chosen ones, and everyone else was going to hell. And so, as a little kid. The narrative was that they had to save everybody. Talk about a huge or, you know, <laughs> a huge, like, yeah, pressure. pressure of like if you are told you have to save the world. I mean, for real. Yeah. And, or, or these people are going to burn in hell. Yeah. And you're a little kid. Like that's intense. And that, you know, her biggest thing is that she had to realize she's not responsible for the things she thought she was responsible for as a child. Mm. Right. That's hard. I mean, I think we've all been there. Like yeah. that's hard trying to undo the tapes that we had in our childhood. So those are re- that's a really intense tape, and they made it seem like that they were going to be heroes. You know that all the, the children were going to be everybody was going to be a hero, but the day to day, like they you you're you're going to be heroes. You're going to save everybody in the world, but the day to day was about fear and control. So they didn't get out of line. So no one inside the group would get curious and want to know what was going outside. Mm-hmm. So like, yes, you're going to be a hero, but day to day is really scary. And she, you know, talked about Father David was trying to, the man who started this was trying to escape some something and that everyone else was too who joined. And that it was a massive social experiment gone wrong. Yeah, and that she, you know, so her thing is like she has what she describes as age anxiety because she really didn't think she was going to live that long. And she never had contact with older people. They weren't allowed to think about the future or make plans. And she, you know, joked that she has a hard time making plans now. Because she only thought she was going to live. Right. To a certain time. So what Ashley is referencing is that within this cult, so they they loosely based some of their beliefs off of the Bible. I don't remember the the day. That, I don't remember it was like the 92. date either. Yeah, it was it was somewhere in the nineties. Definitely has passed. And that they there were actually a couple different dates that they believed. There was one date that they believed that Armageddon, which is the end of the world, was going to happen. Right. And so the world would be destroyed ultimately. And when that date came and passed, you know, because they didn't think they were going to live past that. So there's, you're literally living day to day. Yeah. And just Talk to about save being in the people. moment. Right. So that date comes and or passes. Maybe not in the moment. And that, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I actually don't know. Just completely in fear. <laughs> I don't I mean, even know. Yeah. fear-based existence. And whether they recognize that or not, that's yeah. what it was. And oh, then yeah. that date comes and passes. And then yeah, there was another date that was, that was announced. Okay, okay. And I don't remember what the specific timeline was. But yeah, after she got out, she realized that she'd lived her entire life based off of a date that someone else had, right. quote unquote, gotten, you know, as the Armageddon end of the world. And so there was, she never learned she never dreamed past a certain point totally what I want to be when I get older right because it's like the equivalent of me being like well when I'm 110 I want to do this like Mm -hmm. I don't think about my life past you know hopefully 90 but you know whatever that's we'll be podcasting at 90 at 90 for sure but um I'll glue in your dentures please do please do 
no headgear. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I just, I, if I didn't think past, but I will tell you this, there was a period in my using where I did not believe that I was going to make it past 20. Oh my God. And so I would think about that a lot and think about things in context of that because I kind of decided, you know, I kind of gave up oh, and was that? like, this yeah. is what it's going to be like. This is where we're headed. You where, know? where did that come from? That idea? Because of the way I was drinking and using. So you felt like this is for sure, like I'm going to end because Yeah, I just didn't think it was going to happen. I think figured I would talk to my dad and I was like, look, I'm going to kill myself. And he made me, um, yeah, he made me promise I wouldn't kill myself till, till I'm 25. And he had this whole, this is such a like, this is, a this is such a New York, you know, culturally Jewish dad <laughs> type of thing. Like if you have a dad who's a New York Jew, you'll understand this. He was like, look, you can't – I need you to commit to me that you won't kill yourself till you're 25 because – but you don't really know what life is until you're 25. So when you're 25, <laughs> you kind of know what life is. You have you have an idea. You've known enough people. You've done enough things. So <laughs> you really just – I really would like you to commit to me you're not going to make that decision until you're 25. <laughs> like, I'm laughing just because I can so hear Peter yeah, saying this. Yeah, I remember just thinking like – who are you? Of course. Like if I had had that same conversation with my mother, she would have freaked out, you know, like, you know, I could, I would have done the same thing. Yeah. And my dad's just like, well, let's calculate this and yeah, let's just like logic (laughs) this out. Like, so anyway, but I, but that tells you, like I did have conversations. I just didn't think I had no way of knowing what was beyond massive Mm-hmm. drug addiction, yeah. alcoholism, and destruction. So I just didn't know. You know, it's I a just survival mentality. Yeah. It's yeah. a survive, not thrive but, mentality to a degree. But I knew older people and I knew that people I knew pe- many people who lived past that. Like so it was it yeah. wasn't by the when I got there it was like, oh, okay. All right. This is what we're doing. You know, so it was like a recalibration and looking around, but it wasn't like something that I couldn't imagine, right? right. Like, like this, she just, it was just, you know, and just absolutely couldn't imagine. And, um, you know, they weren't allowed to think about the future. And, and you know, when I asked her about reintegration, because that was one of the things I was most interested in is, which is where the recovery happens, right, is yeah. the reintegration. And she said that she does not believe, she did not believe that the reintegration into, into society, into, you know, what we deem normal society, would have been possible without numbing out with drugs and alcohol. She does not believe. And she said that she realized she was escaping her potential through drugs and alcohol because she was never asked what she wanted to be when she grew up and suddenly she's faced with a future. And she, you know, she said some things that were interesting. She said, I don't believe in stopping. The substance is not the problem. I had to figure out what that was and what I was avoiding and numbing. And, you know, she is not in... Alcohol and drug recovery. So her 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 experience is going to be different than a lot of ours. But I thought that it still was it's still recovering. It's still using these toxic coping skills. And I loved that she says she abandoned her addiction when she started writing her book and found that writing was extremely healing. She couldn't put words on a page that weren't true. Hmm. She couldn't lie to the pen, you know, when put pen to paper, when she was just writing writing it out. She couldn't lie. She couldn't change it. was it. her connection with yeah. the truth. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was her grounding in totally. essence. Totally. That was her grounding. And I, 
in in therapy and treatment and re, you know rehab recovery the whole thing we have to do a lot of writing and or you don't have to but i have done a lot of writing and it has been that piece is so healing for me cuz i completely identify with the truth coming out on paper i don't and i'm like i don't why do i have to write this down i know it you know i know what my amends are i know what blah 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 and then or like, oh, Ashley, you should journal about that. And me being like, oh, seriously, that's right. stupid. But it, it sounds kind of like a like a chore at first. Yeah, and like pointless, childlike ah. journaling, like lame. I don't know, the, the, diary. Like, yeah, di- dear diary, like Mean Girls. You know, nine hundred two and zero, like dear diary. Dir- that's just your recovery pops- burn book. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's so real. Um, so I. But when I've done it, the outcome has been tremendously healing. So I really liked that she had that experience and thought, gosh, I hope that people hear that. I hope that people hear that when you put pen to paper, if you're listening to this and you're in pain, that I highly, 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 highly recommend getting a journal or opening a Google Doc or a document on your computer, Mm -hmm. iPad, whatever you have, and writing out what's going on. You will be amazed at what comes out and it doesn't need to be full sentences and the grammar doesn't need to be correct and it doesn't need to sound good and any of that because that was often a um, hitch for me, which was like, wanted you know, yeah, it. like I wanted it to be perfect and I wanted, you know, I didn't want run on sentences and all this stuff. And like what I needed was just that write it out and just get it out on paper and then look at it and go, oh my gosh, like having all these revelations through that She said that once she chose to write out her narrative, there was no avoiding anything. It was the cathartic act of crafting the narrative into something else. So she was, in essence, getting what was inside of her out and then also creating what she needed in order to heal, in order to move forward. Yeah, I would imagine that going through something like that and then coming out you know, relatively suddenly and being introduced to an entirely different world and viewpoint and truths and what have you. I mean, I literally cannot imagine how confusing and disruptive that would be. You know, I think I can't relate to Floor on a a growing up in a cult standpoint, but I can relate to her in the sense of growing up and having your thoughts and free thinking completely suppressed. And you are not allowed, for instance, when I, in certain aspects of my childhood, I was not allowed to think or feel a certain way. Mm. It was not allowed. And I'm that's interesting. a very expressive person. Yeah. I'm not going to like vomit all over people, you know, with my self-expression, but I, I, I'm a dancer. I'm a singer. So it, it's stuff. Yeah. You're very creative. I'm very creative and, and it comes out, the output. Yeah, helps and and it's like a self-expression piece for me. So growing up and being told, and whenever I would express myself or say, I, you know, I feel a certain way. Or I I this is how I think yeah. it. And it, it the answer was just no. And then I was told you are not allowed to feel that way. Hmm. Me, I was very obedient, so I was super expressive. Right. But then also would be like, oh, okay, so I have to figure out how to take this and stick that inside and jam, jam, jam and. All right, so I'm just going to jam all this stuff inside. Right. So after a period of a cer- certain time, you have all this suppressed, jammed feel and emotion to the point where you just explode. It has to come out. There's only a certain amount that can come that can you know stay stay sitting you know inside right. of you right. before it just explodes out. And so yeah. that would come out with like, this is so bad, but it's so true. 
I really love people. I mean, really love, love, love people around me. But I was the new girl a lot. And whenever I would... I would show up to a new place, then someone would mess with me just one too many times and I would beat the crap out of them, which is very out of character for me. Anyone that knows me is like, what? She's in the principal's office? What? Like she's a rule follower, but it would come out. And so what I had to learn as an adult after all of that is seeing that self-expression is so vitally important. And I feel like that's what I was hearing Flora say. So she said... Our souls are hungry for something. They have a deep dissatisfaction. There's no creation or destruction, only transformation. So you're taking, she and she was taking what was in her past, which she was, you had to think a certain way in this cult. I studied a lot about the children of God. And you you thought a certain way and that was it. Otherwise you were out. She's, oh, she says, she grew up in an environment where her mind was taken away, which yes. was psychological abuse. She was not allowed to think right. a certain way. She was not allowed to feel a certain way. However, her soul told her to think, feel right. like, this sounds so like, I, I don't know. I know some people are like, oh, this is so hippy dippy. But you know what? There's something, as I've learned growing up, there is something that is just so freeing and so enabling and powerful to be able just to know that you can express yourself. It doesn't mean that you have the right to go and just say whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. There are, you know, there are the boundaries of just being kind to people, learning to not stereotype, things of that nature. But knowing that you as a person, as a human being, have the fundamental right of self-expression in whatever form you choose is fantastic. Yeah, it's you're you're totally jogging stuff for me. So <laughs> I started laughing. Sorry, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing about this memory that just came up where so I went to Catholic school for eight years. My dad is was born into a Jewish family. And um, he, he's, I say that because he's not practicing. And my mom is Episcopalian, Protestant, and I was baptized Protestant. And then I went to eight years of Catholic school. So a lot of, <laughs> lot of weird stuff going on. So I just had this funny thought about not being allowed to believe. Like I felt like that a lot in my, my parents are questioners. My dad, my dad, I should, my dad is a questioner. And not uh, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was allowed to question everything. In fact, we would have long conversations from the time I was five years old questioning things. And he explained to me why the grass was green because of chlorophyll and the sky was blue because of the ozone. And we would talk, you know, he like mm-hmm. he would always explain. Amazing. He's explained some awkward topics in weird ways, which I won't get into. But oh, my God. Can all you yeah. We, I was like, oh, mom, where are you? <laughs> um, so <laughs> there in fourth grade, there was a priest and he came in to talk about souls and spirits and oh, okay. like like breaking it down what they are yeah or whatever it was yeah okay. and i and he said that animals do not have souls i can't with this okay I, no no but this is this is the best part okay, sorry i let you tell your story no 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 it's it's you'll 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 appreciate this okay so <laughs> so normally i was like silent and whatever but i this just at being, I am, I'm a crazy animal person. And so being that, I just was like, what? (laughs) You're wrong. (laughs) So I raised my hand and I said, Father Dominic, animals do have souls. Like I didn't ask him. I told him that animals have souls. And he said, no, we don't believe that animals have souls. They do not have souls. And I was like, actually they do. My cat 
has a soul and like I, whatever. So they sent me home because I was being combative. What? Well, right. Because, but you're not allowed to feel a certain way. And I will say that the current Pope, whose name is, oh my gosh, I'm having a senior moment. The current Pope, dear God, someone help me. Uh, The current Pope came, (laughs) came out recently, like a year or two ago and said that animals have souls. And I posted that article everywhere. I was like, I knew it. I told you. See, you know, like like, I've been fighting the good fight. Yeah, exactly. I was like, you guys suppressed my beliefs. But it was just interesting of I remember that I but it's so funny because at home I was there was I was very much allowed to believe what I wanted and I very much did. Well you were able to express yourself. Right. But I do I was absolutely miserable in a situation where we were all, you know, the idea was that this this was our belief. You know, it was a Catholic school. Like, mm-hmm. I get it. That makes sense. Like, they are very clear about what their beliefs are, and I am entering into their turf. You know, I am I am signed up for their school, so there's no reason why I should theoretically be allowed to complicate that. I understand that now, but that feeling for me of not being, you know, not being allowed, like, it was very much not okay. And I can't imagine growing up in a home like that. That I mean, I— I, when I put myself in from that perspective, like mm-hmm. if home and school had been like that, I, that I don't, I, I can't, I mean, I don't know how it could have gotten worse <laughs> than what ended up happening, yeah. but I feel like it would have been worse. It um, feels like your mind is in a box and yeah, there, there's a certain level of like, I was a really good student, like really good student. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, I just, yeah. I was a rule follower yeah. and I loved it. I loved um, overachieving and yeah. perfectionism and all these fun things that Ashley, you know, always is like calling me out on like, don't yeah. be such a perfectionist. You're going to be a recovering perfectionist. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm in recovery from perfectionism. And I just remember it kind of flipped for me cause there was no rest at home. There was no rest. Right. So mentally That's gonna be exhausting. It was 100% completely exhausting. Even laying down in bed at night, you didn't know if you're going to be woken up because I was needed for something. This isn't about my recovery story, but basically I remember the flip for me. And I wonder if this was the same for floor was whenever I'd go to school, there were people that loved and accepted me. I had friends. Yeah. I could choose if I wanted to do well or not. And so I chose just for my mental sanity just to not try that hard in school. Yeah. And my teachers would get so mad at me because they were like – Unexplored potential. Yeah. They're like, you are so intelligent. Why are you – and I just was tired. Yeah. I was tired. It sounds – Well, she says a deep dissatisfaction. And Mm -hmm. that that terminology, which is interesting, like there's so many things where I really – have no ability to relate to the events of her story, but the feelings that yeah. she had, some of the feelings of soul searching and deep dissatisfaction and wanting, you know, feeling like you can't fit in, you know, integration, these ideas, I can relate to that. Yeah. You know, I can relate to needing to numb because it's too overwhelming. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? I also thought about um, from Floor's thing, this is obviously a touchy subject, but. I thought about the division, the political division that goes on in the sense that she comes out of this cult that dissolves and comes back into what we would consider general society, Western society, I'll say. 
and has to relearn all the new norms and belief systems and all the different things. Okay, you go to yeah. school, school's from this time to this time, like all the different things. We believe this, you know, this is how things work. And I thought about how with all the divisiveness right now, the belief systems of, say, people in middle America and versus, you know, what they call the coastal elites and, you know, people all over the country, it's kind of the same thing in the sense that they're coming from a belief system. Like they're coming from this whole belief system and our belief system and their belief system were com- were, were clashing against each other mm-hmm. when we talk about certain topics. And so if you, you know, like animals have souls and if you're taught that animals don't have souls or she's taught that she's never going to get old or... I'm taught that, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, I was taught that I could be anything I wanted to be. So I, you know, that... Karen Lobster Karen. Karen Lobster Karen, exactly. And the fact that I was taught that when I've come up against other people who've said differently, that made me very angry, right? That's mm-hmm. made me very angry. I got in a fight in a French restaurant with a French man who told me <laughs> I needed... <laughs> <laughs> That's another story for another day, but I did. We um, got to hear the yeah, story. No, it was, so yeah, I stormed out. But here's, Wait, French accent? Fight with a French man, French accent. I just wanted to I didn't have a French accent. No, he, not you. Oh, him. him. Yeah, French yeah. Man. Oh, yeah. No, he, he was yeah. yelling at you with an accent. I, I, he was talking to me, telling me that because I was talking about studying international relations and politics in undergrad. That's what I was doing at the time. Right. And he was like, American women are funny. They think they can, you know, be oh. in men. And I was like, but here's the thing. That's his belief system. Well, he's wrong. <laughs> but it's, but it, here's the thing. That's what other people think. Like we are so in our belief systems, right? Like his belief system is that. And whether that's not my truth, but I just think it's a really interesting commentary on coming into a new place and how do you let in someone else's belief system and what do you do with it? Like if you are raised Mm -hmm. with a belief system that clashes with another, Mm -hmm. How do you let that other one in without maybe even necessarily making it your own? Like, how do we hear each other? How do we communicate? Like, it's a greater, I mean, again, it's not for this podcast, but it's a greater conversation on like, this is what I, this is what I was taught. This is what I believe. And now you're telling me something different. And I feel like every single person who comes into contact with someone who tells them different information than what they believe to be true the first thing we do is reject it. Reject it. Mm-hmm. That that's like out. that human nature. And so it explains, in my opinion, it explains a lot of societal phenomena, right? Like why it is that there's just these belief systems, you know, whether it's guns or abortion or, or, or healthcare or whatever, where mm-hmm. it's just there's no conversation to be had because the truth is that you're not going to convince me that animals don't have souls. You're not. There's nothing you could tell me 
that would tell me that animals don't have souls. Seriously, there's because, nothing. Right, because it's not there's your no evidence. Experience. There's no evidence. My dog has a, like there's no. I'm gonna e- give you evidence right now. Are you yeah. ready for this? Yeah. Do you know what a soul is? No. Okay. A soul. I, that's, that's even more embarrassing. Well, uh, well no, that's not embarrassing. Okay, so this is. I mean, I can I'm make. I'm just giving a general up. education. <laughs> what your soul is, your yeah. soul is comprised technically comprised of is three things. It's your mind, your will, and your emotions. Mm. Someone tell me that an animal doesn't have all three. Yeah, of you haven't met my dog. You haven't met my dog. Yeah. So, so okay. There you go. Mind, will, and and, and emotions. There you go. So there you go. I. That's perfect. You can't. So you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Someone gonna tell you that your dog does not it's have. A, I mean, they have mind, will, and emotions. There's no. But this is what I'm saying. Like, I am not open to new information. Yes. I am. That's I a am. Good point. I am happily willing to admit that. Mm-hmm. I am not open to new information about that. I don't care what you think about that. I don't care if you grew up with a different belief. Mm -hmm. I simply don't care. It's just not in the cards for me. So then that opens the conversation up. I don't know if we want to get into it today, but that that basically says that, you know, there are times when your beliefs can be challenged or where your life experience or the things that you've researched or seen and known for yourself brings you to such a solid conclusion that I've made up my mind. This is my belief system. Thank you. Now I'm done. Right. But that doesn't help me to be open to conversation and try to understand other people. So I think that the piece is, and this is like straying so far, but whatever. (laughs) We're we're straying so far. Rabbit trails? Yeah, rabbit trails. not us at all. I think that the overall conversation is maybe my mind, maybe my belief is strong and I believe what I believe. But do I, am I willing to sit down and listen to someone else's belief without judgment, right? Without judging them, which is hard. Mm-hmm. Am I willing to sit down and listen to them and hear them and seek to understand them? Can I do that? I think that's where the division comes in, mm-hmm. is that are we seeking to understand each other? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I got to say that there are a lot of times where I'm not. Yeah. And I think if everyone's honest with themselves that they yeah. they have that that those times or those moments yeah. where they're not. I think that it's such an important lesson to learn that, you know, people you're gonna have some sort of values and belief system. Yeah. You're gonna have things that you're going to concretely believe. And quite frankly, that's a good thing because we we've otherwise we'd just kind of be blown in the wind, right? If you didn't have your own values right. and belief systems. But the other piece to that is the and Let's also sit down and not be afraid right. to hear each to other. To hear each other, seek to understand. And I think one thing that I – I'm going to compliment myself Holy, One thing that go. I feel that I have, which I isn't because I'm a, a great person, it's because I'm genuinely curious, is that I do seek to understand people because people fascinate me. They fascinate me, how people get to the thought process and and to the point where when I was a, um, a teenager, my friends would get really upset because I would always sit down, We would, you know, I'd go out to a group dinner or whatever, and I, w- I would always end up sitting on some bench with some homeless person asking them, like, how they got there. Mm-hmm. My friends were like, seriously, dude, we would just want to go back. <laughs> and I they, they would joke with me about it. It was, it was a, actually, you should ask my sisters about it sometime when they come into town because they were just like... <laughs> Ashley, let's go. I'm like, you got to hear this. This person has a story. Yeah. And so I actually have this piece of me that is genuinely curious to understand people, but I don't think it comes, I'm not saying that that comes from, it doesn't come from a, um, 
I don't know. It doesn't come from this like crazy altruistic place per se. Mm -hmm. It comes from like really being curious about how people get from one place to another, how people, how people acquire the beliefs that they have. Mm -hmm. And if I could stretch that to places where I've previously been unwilling, I think that my, you know, you can really open up. And I have found that when I shut out people's ideas completely and then I return to them. So um, I'm trying to think of a, uh, I don't want to put any ones out there, but you know, when I have, there have been beliefs I've had where I was like, I am not willing to have any new information about this. I'm not willing to have a conversation about it. I don't care, blah, 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 blah. And then when I've become willing to have more information, I've been surprised. On, a, on This has happened to me on a variety of topics where I'm like, oh, I need to just stop judging things because every time I do this, I end up with my foot in my mouth. <laughs> um, but yeah, like having that, having new information is a really powerful thing. And you've here's what I find. I am like so incredibly like, you know, like everything that I find is a gray area is there, there's some in between. Like I have yet to see where an extreme belief system is truly of ultimate value. Okay. I always find that personally, this is just personally, I always find that some, that it's somewhere in the middle that both sides have whatever the sides are, like there's something interesting. And, you know, if we use this in this the floors situation, you know, there may have been something to gathering a group of people together, having a, an insular community where things function a certain way. And, um, you know, they hated capitalism. They hated Western culture. They lived minimally. You know, you could take some of that for, you know, certainly and say, okay, there's a value there. Like mm-hmm. there may be a value to living minimally. Right. Right. Like yeah. maybe there was, there were lessons that were taught there or, you know. Or being in a close knit community. Yeah, yeah. Or whatever. Like there were values that were taught in that situation that if you extract the intention of some of those things, not the outcome, <laughs> that you could potentially get on board with. So I, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting thing. Like we jump to like, oh, cult equals children of God equals bad. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting that, you know, when we look deeper, it's about people seeking something. And that's what they were, you know, they were all the members, right? All the adults that joined were seeking something right? They felt deep dissatisfaction with whatever they were doing and they were seeking something. And then the kids obviously bear much of the brunt of that having, you know, grown up in it. That's so true. And Flora's done such a phenomenal job on, you know, just writing and she's, she's written her, her book. Yeah. The Apocalypse Child. Mm -hmm. And then she disclosed that she's working on another book. Yeah. So she's so exciting. Yeah. She was saying, and I'm really interested in that one too, because the Apocalypse Child, that book, talks about the jerk, like what happened, like it's a, that's a, you know, what happened here. And then she's going to write another book. She said that talks about the mindset, the psychological stuff that went on, um, uh, talking about the social experiment aspect of it, talking mm-hmm. about reintegration and reeducation. I mean, she went to, she went from no schooling or some homeschooling to UC Berkeley and, you know, has, has 
thrown herself into lots of education and and she also has a really great social experiment you know opportunity in the fact that she's one of 11 children and she's a identical twin That's so right. she can take a look at i mean theoretically you could just take a look at how those 11 people were able to reintegrate and you know this right. many did really well this many struggled this many are here there you know or whatever it is and um so I, i'll be interested to see what she comes up with and and she was just a really lovely person i really enjoyed having her in here and I felt like I felt like it was a really cool opportunity to hear something a little bit different and also realize that for the millionth time recovery is recovery is recovery. Yeah. It's the same. It absolutely is. And I love how I love how you said, you know, you couldn't relate to her on one level, but you could take pieces of mm -hmm. what she shared and say, oh, I felt that way or I understand right. it from this perspective. And I think that's that's one of the things that you'd shared at the beginning of this podcast, the, meaning the whole series of it, which was even if you have never struggled with a substance use disorder or, you know, with anything that we've, an eating disorder, you know, through sexual assault, so many of these things that, you know, we've brought forth on this podcast, it doesn't mean that there aren't certain things that you can take away from it and relate to on another level mm -hmm. and walk away from going, huh, yeah, that'll really help. Or, you know what, I really should, like therapy could be really good because it'll just help me with my mental wellness because I struggle just with generalized anxiety or whatever the case may be. And mm -hmm. I think that that's also the inspiring thing is each of these guests are sharing their stories in hopes that like, not that they're reaching one certain grouping of people, but just to inspire the courage to change yeah. just in regards to life. So that's been yeah. something that's been so neat to be a part of so far. Yeah. It's been really cool. I want to share one last thing before we end. A friend of mine, her mom grew up in Iran and she, my friend was listening to Casey's podcast um, about the episode Route 91, nine. episode nine about the Route 91 shooting. And she said what it brought up for her, which I thought was like, you know, not what I would have guessed, right? But she said that when her mother first moved to America, that she had this horrible time with the 4th of July because it sounds like gunshots. And <gasps> she grew up during wartime. Oh, and so gosh. it was really scary. And I thought, wow, how lucky, like, like we take this into this one incident and this one group of people are like, oh my gosh, this is horrible that they have to go through this. And of course we feel terrible about it, but interesting that she put it into perspective of in Iran, the entire country during that time grew up like that. Yeah. The entire country. I mean, it's happening outside your door. Right. It, it's the That's how you live. Right. In, in place, yeah. the, like we... We are not used to that, thank God. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, I think we're becoming a little more used to it, but, you know, for this purposes. And she reminded me that, you know, that her, I mean, she wasn't meaning to remind me of this, but she reminded me that there are countries where people, this is the daily life yeah. and how blessed we are to not be in that. So I just got that, you know, it's really cool. Like I just got another perspective on another avenue of relating to that same story. The recovery network. Yeah. Just like really just, we all yeah. kind of, we're all connected. We're all connected. We yeah. are. Oh, oh. You and I are connected. Faux ooh, show. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> well, um, I adore you and thank you for uh, rabbit trailing with me. <laughs> 
Um, I loved Chris and Floor, and I'm just really grateful that they were able to come. Definitely check out Christopher Poulos, Mm -hmm. P-O-U-L-O-S. He is doing a lot of really cool stuff. You can follow him on, I think, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I know Facebook for sure. I'm guessing Instagram and Twitter. We have his his uh, information in our show notes for episode okay, yeah. 12. Check the show notes if you want. He's doing to check out all the stuff he's doing. He's he's doing a lot of recovery related mountaineering, and he raises money for recovery. He's working on different public policies about reentry. Just follow him. He is making a difference, and I I highly suggest you follow what he's doing. Floor Edwards, F L O R Edwards. She has a website and her book, Apocalypse Child, can be purchased on Amazon. And she also is going to be coming out with another book and does a lot of speaking. She was on Dr. Oz and has done a lot of other interviews. If you want to look her up, uh, Floor Edwards, if you put her into a Google search, all of that stuff will come up. And uh, we hope you enjoyed both the interviews and our analysis of them (laughs) after the fact and all of society. Yeah. (laughs) See you later. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 